And good morning here from the Fuzzy Logic Science Show here on 2XX. And I'm not sure whether it's really obvious to most of us, but our entire civilization runs on energy. Everything we do depends on energy. I got up this morning and I made myself a cup of tea. Energy. A breakfast bowl of cereal used energy to get it onto my plate at the farm, to deliver it to the supermarket, the lights in my kitchen. Everything depends on energy. Pumping carbon dioxide into the atmosphere and it's quite clear that we are heading for disastrous climate change effects. Well, to help us through this story today, we have a, a, an expert in solar energy and in fact energy in general and in particular renewable energy. Professor Andrew Blake is, is the director of the ANU Centre for Sustainable Energy Systems. Good morning, Andrew, and welcome to Fuzzy Logic. Good morning. Now, Andrew, I would just like to talk a bit about your own background before we get into the, the, the deep and technical details. Um, a little bit about yourself. What is your first memory of being interested in renewable energy? I was going to be an astronomer from a young age, and so I specialised in physics and maths at uh, school and also at university. But I also took up bushwalking when I was in my teens, and it's not possible to go bushwalking in the Brindabellas and the Butterwangs and other lovely places without realising that there's an awful lot of threats out there to the, the beautiful bush that I walk through. And uh, one of the obvious threats way back in the 70s and before is climate change. It was quite obvious to any physicist that if you put more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, then the world will warm up. And so I changed my views as to what I should do. Uh, I decided that while astronomy is still very interesting and I retain a very strong interest in astronomy, I should use my physics and maths for something else. And the obvious thing to use physics and maths for would be renewable energy and photovoltaic solar energy in particular. Do you, do you remember a particular moment where you just thought, aha, or, or was it a, like a, an emerging realisation? Um, my emerging realisation that conservation environment were absolutely critical issues was, was a slow emergence and it happened for my whole family. So my sister Margaret became very prominent in the, um, in the Greens and my, my brother Robert um, is a prominent wilderness photographer in Tasmania. My father and mother both um, sat down in front of bulldozers at the Franklin Dam and ended up in jail. Uh, it became a sort of a family business and um, I chose to address it by the means of getting a PhD in the area of photovoltaics and um, I've adopted that as a, as a career. And you had a strong interest in science and you saw these two these things converging? Yeah, in some senses um, solar energy is astronomy except we're using the light from a very nearby star rather than studying the light from a very distant star. <laughs> well, we, let's get into some of the details about photo, photovoltaics and, and uh, photo energy. Or PV for short. Or, or PV for short. Um, so the, the very first uh, demonstration of a solar panel was back in 1954 in Bell Labs. But the uh, whole idea of, of uh, the photovoltaic energy, or photoelectric effect, I should say, goes back to Becquerel, I think, is in 18. 
39, so it's actually quite an old idea. Uh, yes, the efficiency that Becquerel managed to get from his selenium was not very high, but he definitely got electrons uh, from the effect of light. So basically, what, what did he do? How did he do it? Well, perhaps I could describe very briefly how a solar cell works. They all walk, work in much the same way. Um, you have a disk of silicon, which is approximately um, 150 microns thick. That's about three times thicker than a human hair. And it has a diameter of about 16 centimetres. And just under the surface is a thing called a PN junction, which is what, like a one-way membrane. So photons of light, particles of energy, come into the silicon and knock an electron off an atom. And the electron goes one way, and uh, the positive charge left behind on that, in, on that atom is also free to migrate. But if the electron happens to migrate through the PN junction, just under the surface, it's gone through this one-way membrane and can't come back. So you build up a negative charge at the top side of the silicon, and hence a positive charge at the back side. So if you connect the top of the silicon cell to the bottom through an external load, then the electron, rather than trying to go back through the one-way membrane, will go through the external load, do useful work, and then come in the back side of the solar cell to fill in the positive charges. And if you double the light intensity, you get double the electric current. So you get this electricity, but no moving parts. That's right, which is the reason why solar energy photovoltaics is the most uh, reliable form of energy generation ever invented. That's why it's universally used on satellites, except for spacecraft going beyond Jupiter orbit. Now, Ask Fuzzy has a companion column in Fairfax Media, and we've got one in the works at the moment, which is Spider Vision. Now, I'm guessing that Spider Vision and Human Vision, or Vision in general, uses the photoelectric effect. Would that be right? Somewhat different, in, uh, different uh, identical in the sense that a photon of light liberates an electron somewhere in the system and that electron is then detected in a photodetector such as an eye. In the photovoltaic effect, the electron energy is utilised to create a voltage uh, that you can then use for uh, doing useful work electrically rather than chemically. Uh, the photoelectric effect normally in your eye normally has a chemical effect. The photovoltaic effect is a pure electric effect. Uh, okay, so they're, they're similar in that uh, electron is knocked out of its orbit by an incoming photon and then something happens downstream. The energy goes somewhere, either to a chemical uh, end user or uh, an electrical end user. Okay, so now you worked your way into this field of research. How, how did you get there? What, what were the big moments that led you to become a, a pioneer in uh, photovoltaics? Well, uh, I did physics, maths at ANU, and uh, once I had finished my undergraduate degree, um, I took a year off and went around the world, and that was a very formative year. I came back then and started a PhD at the University of New South Wales in um, 1979, which was... Um, just at the early part of the photovoltaic revolution. And um, I spent 10 years at the University of New South Wales working primarily on high-performance silicon solar cells. And the first 18% efficient, 19% efficient and 20% efficient silicon solar cells were made by me at the University of New South Wales. And uh, in um, 1988, just before I left, 
I led the program that developed the first PERC cell, P-E-R-C. PERC cells are going to dominate the world of photovoltaics over the next few years. There are already more than half of new production lines going in. And so this Australian invention is likely to end up constituting about half of the world solar market, which is worth many tens of billions per year. Uh, unfortunately, all patents and uh, IP returns are long since uh, washed away, but nevertheless, it's of considerable pride to the Australians involved in the development of the Perk cell that we develop the technology that is dominating the world of solar energy. So that's a fantastic achievement for you and, and for Australia that we were able to advance solar technology in that way. Is it also though a missed opportunity because we're not really manufacturing these on any scale in Australia, are we? No. Uh, there is a company called Tindo which imports solar cells and uh, manufactures panels and they're doing quite well. Uh, I, I guess Tindo will also be looking at stepping back up the manufacturing stream and manufacturing solar cells from imported wafers. Uh, it remains to be seen whether they choose to do that. There's no reason Australia could not manufacture photovoltaics in Australia and um, because it's a, it's a very skilled uh, process so that the uh, and the labour content is relatively low. The labour content is less than 10% of the total value of the system. The advantage that um, a place like China or other manufacturing centres has is um, fairly modest environmental safeguards and uh, having allied industry located in the same city so that you don't have to send away to another country to get some spare parts or some materials. You just walk down the road and everything you need is there. So critical mass is critical in industry and the car industry knew that and um, the abolition of the car industry in Australia will also unravel a whole raft of allied industries and so it is with photovoltaics. We could have a PV industry but we need the PV industry and its allied component manufacturing companies as well. Right. Well, we'll get more into the topic of the solar industry and where Australia sits with China and, and the opportunities. I'd like to backtrack a little bit more to the, the technical side of your your work. And so what, you, you talked about this thing called PERT and so on. What was the major principle behind that? What was the, the flash of inspiration that, that, that what did, what, was there a moment of inspiration where you went, ah, oh, that, that's something that might work? Uh, it wasn't a, a momentary flash um, in that, unlike a physical principle where a single principle can come to you in a moment, uh, this required a lot of technologies, components to come together and work. And it was not clear that any one of them would work or that they would work together in concert, which is required for an individual solar cell. So you're saying you had a whole bunch of, of possible ideas that would... And, and I tried many ideas and discarded them one by one, working towards a, a general concept for a solar cell that would have um, a very clean silicon substrate. In other words, I had to stop impurities getting into the substrate during the high temperature processing, and a very high quality front surface in order to trap the incoming light effectively in the silicon and a very well passivated surface that means that the surface is coated with special materials such as silicon dioxide that um, 
tie up the the dangling chemical bonds at the surface and stop the electrons recombining with the atoms that they came from and hence you're losing the effect of the incoming photon. We have to make, keep the electron alive in the silicon. That means there must be very few defects and impurities in the silicon. And the surface is one huge defect because the silicon crystal suddenly stops there. So is this primarily what you're talking about, a fabrication technique? Yes, it's a, a method of depositing uh, the passivation technique in conjunction with maintaining high purities within the silicon in conjunction with trapping the light in conjunction with having positive and negative electrodes which make low resistance contact to the silicon without blocking the light and then making sure it all works together all at once ah and it does it borrow uh, principles or techniques used in the computer chip industry my word the computer chip industry has always been a lot larger than the photovoltaic industry Within a few years, that will stop being true. The PV industry will end up in being bigger than the electronics industry. However, the existence of the silicon chip industry has been very important in developing the silicon PV industry. And we could borrow techniques. However, the difference is that the silicon chip industry makes uh, chips by the square centimetre. We need to make solar cells by the square kilometre. Uh, much bigger ones. We cannot afford costs that are within three orders or so of magnitude, in fact of a thousand, um, compared with the silicon chip industry. We have to take basically what they do and do it a thousand times cheaper per square centimetre. Oh, and so how much opportunity, well, well first of all, what's the current um, efficiency of a cell? How, how much power can you generate out of one little cell? Well, the world record solar cell for silicon is about 25.6%. The world record performance for any type of solar cell is about 45%. The 45% cell, however, is made from exotic materials based on gallium arsenide, which are incredibly expensive and only suitable for placement at the focus of a thousand sun concentrator or for placement on a satellite where the cost is no object. So it won't scale to domestic use very well? It will not scale to domestic use. Uh, Over here on Fuzzy Logic, my guest today is Professor Andrew Blake. And we're talking about solar technology, renewables, and where we're going with the whole energy generation business. Now, um, how much opportunity is there to drop the cost of these things? Between 2009 and 2014, the cost of photovoltaics dropped by a factor of four suddenly photovoltaics stopped being an expensive niche product and now photovoltaics is actually cheaper than any other new generation technology. Photovoltaics has turned the corner together with wind energy and uh, are set to now completely dominate the energy markets of the future. There has been a revolution in PV and wind which is turning energy markets worldwide on their heads. And a quick note that uh, in the last budget, the government has hacked community radio funding by $1.4 million per year. That's about as much as you'd need for a coat of paint on a propeller on a submarine. So go to the the Fuzzy Logic Facebook page or you'll find us on Twitter. Uh, Or look out for the hashtag Keep Community Radio and there's an online petition. Put your name behind it because if you want to see uh, programs like 
like fuzzy logic and two double x keep running uh, we need that money it's not that much but it does a really important job now today on fuzzy logic we're interviewing professor andrew blakers who is the director of the anu center for sustainable energy systems now andrew earlier we were talking about the solar energy or the photovoltaic business in australia now a friend of fuzzy a listener uh, has asked us about a an entrepreneur entrepreneur in uh, china and his name is huang ming and he's responsible for this thing called the solar valley in china and it has 800 acres of land and employs 3,000 people and this guy is partly responsible for china having signed a renewable energy uh, bill into legislation so china is really getting behind the the renewable project is that typical across the world andrew the world is changing very fast in the energy industry. Uh, in last year, half of new generation capacity was PV plus wind, about a quarter each. The other two quarters were oil plus coal plus gas plus nuclear plus hydro plus all other renewables put together. Fossil and nuclear are both shrinking and wind and PV are rising at about 22 25% per year. So I can confidently say that by 2020, around about three quarters of new generation capacity installed each year will be PV plus wind. This is a completely radical change from past, and the implications of this have not yet bled through to uh, general perceptions. The fact is that for the last four years and for the foreseeable future all new generation capacity in Australia is PV plus wind. No one will ever build another significant uh, hydro, nuclear, oil, coal, gas power station in Australia. All future production for the next for, for the foreseeable future will be photovoltaics and wind. And the reason for that basically is that they've won the, the economic war, they're cheaper than the new build alternatives. So we've really hit a so-called tipping point, would you say? Oh, yes. The argument in Australia and all around the world is how fast should we push out the incumbent sunk cost coal, in particular coal generators. And you can push them out fast with reverse auctions or renewable energy targets for renewable energy or slow by uh, not putting any carbon price at all on their emissions. Well, what's the current situation with the fixed generation in Australia, the, the coal-powered f- uh, power stations, especially down in Victoria? Where are they at the moment? The existing fossil fuel fleet in Australia is mostly coal. 70 to 75% of electricity in Australia is generated with coal. And that number had been falling rapidly with the carbon price, which was repealed uh, in the uh, last year uh, or the year before. And um, a simple carbon price would cause that percentage, again, to uh, rapidly decrease. Alternatively, reverse auctions for renewable energy, such as being done in the ACT, would accomplish exactly the same task by bringing in photovoltaics and wind to push out this 
sunk cost coal fleet, most of which is 30, 40 years old, and will have to retire anyway over the next 20 years. If we make them retire quickly, then greenhouse gas emissions in Australia go down fast and we get in on the ground floor of the mass production and mass utilisation of renewable energy in Australia and the um, capacity to build a manufacturing industry based around wind and PV in Australia rather than simply importing, as will be the case if we get in very late. What's the impact of the the price on carbon, the so-called big new tax, which was repealed, has it really had a big impact and are we really stuck now that we don't have it? The now pushing coal out of the electricity mix can be done in several ways. Um, perhaps the easiest is simply to do what the ACT government did. The ACT government is holding a series of reverse auctions for wind and PV where companies bid a certain amount, a certain price that they are willing to accept for their wind and PV being fed into the national grid. Uh, and the company that offers this PV and wind for the lowest price will win the tender. That's why it's called a reverse auction, the lowest price wins. And this has also been done all around the world and is yielding, firstly, very accurate knowledge of what the market price is for PV and wind, which is remarkably low. And secondly, um, uh, the competitive pressure produces very low prices. Just last week, there was the announcement that the latest reverse auction bid in the Middle East had produced a solar, a photovoltaic reverse auction price of four Australian cents per kilowatt hour, which is below the price of sunk cost black coal power generation in Australia. So this really does illustrate that the future is wind and PV, the future is not old coal. So this is the ACT where certain politicians would view as being the home of left-greening lentil eaters. This is a political view, and for some reason this is, this has taken a whole political angle. Um, is that a realistic approach? I mean, is it really just because, you know, we, we have a certain political slant in the ACT, uh, or how much of it is it really just make straight economic sense? Uh, the people who manufacture these machines and install them are uh, hard-headed businessmen and women who are not interested in going broke and are very interested in making large profits to distribute to their shareholders. They are no different from other business people. Um, the fact that the ACT uh, conducted this series of reverse auctions in the midst of the re renewable energy investment drought triggered by the federal government's review of the renewable energy target meant that the ACT government was able to get very competitive prices for the wind and PV that it has had installed. And secondly, that these companies promised as part of the deal to set up uh, businesses and activities within the ACT. Early movers, the ACT government in other words, could obtain hundreds of millions of dollars over a 20-year time frame of investment in the ACT, late movers will not have that leverage. So the ACT government is likely to make substantial amounts of money out of this process over the next 20 years. And the additional cost for the actual energy that's being purchased is of the order of a cup of coffee per household per week. 
So it's a trivial amount of extra cost um, with major economic advantages to the ACT. So China has got this bloke named Huang Ming, and he's the big entrepreneur, and he's uh, a mover and shaker, and making a lot of money out of it. Do we need one of these people in Australia? Uh, it'd be very nice to have that sort of person. Of course, if one person can lead you to Nirvana, then the bet noir of that person can lead you back to wherever you came from just as easily. Much better, of course, is if there are thousands of people all heading in the right direction simply because environmental and economic factors are leading you there anyway. Yeah, so often it's seen that uh, something that's good for the environment uh, can't be good for business. There's sort of this either-or situation going on. It's very, very strange. Which, why, why is it that, why is it that we've, we've come into this strange divide between pro and anti, do you think? Uh, I think it's all perception. Um, the investors in Peabody Coal, which had uh, a share price of, I think, $110 four or five years ago and went broke, uh, a month ago uh, would not necessarily think anymore that um, anti-environment is good for business. Uh, Peabody is symptomatic of most of the American uh, coal producers, most of whom have gone broke, and the Australian coal producers, most of whom are either going broke or are there already or are in a parlour state and not making any significant amounts of money. Um, coal is not good business anymore. It's never likely to be good business again. Anyone who thinks they're going to invest in the coal industry, from coal mines through to coal power stations, uh, would be uh, reckless to do so, given that it's highly likely that um, carbon pricing will be introduced everywhere in the world over the next uh, decade. And in any case, wind and PV are undercutting the basic price of coal. And you can see this most clearly in China and India, two huge markets where in China um, more PV and wind is installed each year than uh, nuclear and coal and everything else put together. And in India where that flip will happen within a, a, a very few short years. So not just fossil fuel, but fossil thinking? <laughs> in, indeed. Um, now, let's, let's, let's pick on some of the objections to renewable energies, you know, wind and solar, and they're intermittent. They only blow, uh, only go when the wind is blowing or when the sun is shining. So here today in Canberra, it's rainy, it's overcast, and we're probably not going to produce that much solar. In fact, the, the wind isn't blowing all that much strong either, so are we suddenly out of energy in Canberra? No, the reason we're not is, of course, that um, it doesn't really matter where your wind and PV systems are. They can be in North Queensland or in South Australia or anywhere in between because the whole lot is interconnected. So um, the probability that you have a wind drought and a solar drought over most or all of the national electricity market geographical area is really quite low. And the probability that a coal power station will always operate is, is in fact zero. You have unexpected outages from all energy sources. So the first thing you do if you want high reliability is you spread your PV and wind everywhere and in, interconnect. The second is we stop heating water in the middle of the night and move the off-peak heating to the middle of the day, for example. The third is that we... Um, do demand management. We look at interruptible loads. If there's no wind and, and a shortage of um, solar, then we have loads that don't actually have to run all the time and people are paid a certain amount of money for those loads to be temporarily interrupted. And 
Fourthly, photovoltaics and wind are often counterproducing. Often when the sun is not shining, it's blowing a gale. And this um, weather system that's coming through now is blowing a gale in the southern parts of Australia, even though there's a lot of cloud, which is restricting sun everywhere. Uh, and finally, we do need a small amount of storage. Um, this is small energy, high power storage. And the obvious way to do that is pumped hydro which is 150-year-old technology. When there's excess wind and solar, we pump, wind, uh, we pump water from a low reservoir to a high reservoir. And when we want that energy back again, we let it come back down through a turbine. And there's 3,000 megawatts of pumped hydro already in Australia, 160,000 megawatts all around the world. Nothing to invent. 99% uh, of all energy storage is pumped hydro, mm. and that's the obvious storage to use. Well, we, we do have an example of that near Canberra. In fact, a Juniper Ponds at the base of Talbingo Dams, they buy the energy back cheaply and they pump it up and then generate during the peak hours when it's most required. Now, what does this do to the grid? Um, the grid is still desirable. Um, it probably needs to be reinforced, and high-voltage DC, which is the long-distance transmission method, is growing in leaps and bounds. So it's quite feasible to transfer uh, solar electricity from North Queensland down to Victoria where and South Australia, where there's lots of wind generally, and uh, everywhere in between. And the loss is about 3% per 1,000 kilometres. So it's a 10% you know, loss to go from North Queensland to South Australia. It's a very manageable loss. It becomes also feasible to move uh, electricity on an intercontinental scale from East Asia to West Asia to take advantage of changing time zones, from the Southern Hemisphere to the Northern Hemisphere to take advantage of changing so seasons. you're saying Australia would be connected to an international grid? Indeed. Um, I, I did a study um, about three years ago looking at... Um, vast solar generation in the northern deserts, the Tanami Desert, for example, um, occupying a few thousand square kilometres there, and powering one-third of Southeast Asia. So the high-voltage DC would um, go over the Timor Gap and then up through the Indonesian archipelago to Singapore and Malaysia and meet a similar cable coming south from the west western deserts of China, which have plenty of sun and wind, and then west to India, and east into the island nations of Southeast Asia. And this has now become uh, eminently feasible. In fact, the difficulties are no longer economics and technical. They're the political difficulties of one country depending on another, which actually I think is a very good thing. As Europe found out after the Second World War, if you make sure that the steel industry is spread across all of the countries, it's very difficult to go to war with your neighbour. On Fuzzy Logic is Professor Andrew Blakers, who's director of ANU Centre of Sustainable Energy Systems. Now, just before the break, we were talking about pumped hydro as a method of storing energy. Now, Andrew, um, while the song was playing, you were explaining to me that this isn't necessarily the large-scale, big engineering stuff that goes on in the Snowy Mountain Scheme. Can you uh, explain that? Uh, yes, I will be joining people lying in front of bulldozers when the next river gets dammed. I'm talking about off-river pumped hydro. No river in sight. 99% of Australia is not on a river, so you don't actually want to be near a river for a pumped hydro storage. You find a high hill in cleared farmland, close to roads, close to transmission lines. You build a few, a small, uh, several hectare uh, 
earth dam up like the big, top. Like a big farm dam. An basically. oversized farm dam at the yeah. top, another one at the bottom. You put a single pipe between the two, and in that pipe is a pump turbine, and then you have the transmission system. And the water goes round and round a circle. The water is not lost. And during the day, the water will be pumped uphill. During the night, the water will come down again to generate energy. We're talking about a five-hectare oversized farm dam at the top of the hill and another one at the bottom and a 500 megawatt power system. So tiny dam, but big power, small energy, only about five hours storage to provide energy to cover the day-night issue with solar so you're, and you're generating 500 megawatts out of that's that's how, how much is that sounds like a lot 500 megawatts is a significant amount of power to give a, a the australian entire p uh, entire electricity network is about a 35 um thousand uh, meg, 35, megawatt uh, capacity so i'm talking about 10 or 20 of these 500 megawatt off-river pumped hydro systems to completely stabilise an electricity system that has 100% of its electricity from wind and PV and for which transport and industry has also moved to electricity. So I'm talking about a tiny amount of uh, land that's flooded, maybe 100 hectares, one square kilometre, and uh, that's to be compared with the 1,400 square kilometres occupied by Lake Yukonbeen. In other words, one part in a 1,000 of Lake Yukonbeen spread over about 20 sites scattered from North Queensland through to South Australia, stabilises a completely renewable energy electricity system. Oh, and so why are we not doing it? Are there places where this you, you have this in mind or where it might be done that you, do you think is viable right now? Uh, yes, I have a substantial program that's looking to find every site in Australia that is feasible to do a thorough costing of these off-river pumped hydro systems and to look at integration into 100% renewable energy systems. We've now completed the Western Australian analysis. The next is South Australia. The Western Australian analysis shows that the addition of pumped hydro allows us to get to 90% with no increase in electricity costs compared with um, a conventional system. Going to 100% requires a, a 10 or 20% increase in electricity costs because you need to spill a lot more wind and PV to make sure that you've got enough at all times. South Australia is the next target. By the end of this year, more than half of South Australia's total electricity consumption will come from PV and wind. And South Australia has no hydro at all, and its last coal fire plant is shutting uh, in, in a month or so. So we don't actually need to do anything till we get up towards the 50% level of PV plus wind. And that's the reason why we've only got 3,000 megawatts of pumped hydro storage in Australia at the moment. When we go from 50 to 100%, we do need to include another 10 or 20,000 megawatts of pumped hydro, and we will do that. But it is off-the-shelf technology, nothing to invent. We just decide to do it at the right time. Well, well, uh, Australians will be familiar with the old Southern Cross <laughs> uh, wind pumps, uh, wind water pumps that you see around farms, very small scale, of course. But uh, I would guess, or, or is this part of the thinking that you would just have wind turbines who just do nothing but pumping water uphill, or would you need would it be electric pumps? It would be a pump turbine, which is uh, a pump that, when it runs backwards, is a turbine. These are the standard um, machines now for uh, pumped hydro. They're very expensive and sophisticated machines that will last uh, 50 years. And if you go to the snowy mountains, you can go and hear them and view their housing uh, at any time.
Wow. Okay, so let's talk about energy storage. And so far we've focused on static energy. That's energy to houses, homes, uh, businesses, industry, and so on. What about mobile energy? So what am I going to put in my car? Electrons. <laughs> I think that land transport will rapidly go to um, electricity. Um, if you have a lot of money, you can go out and buy an extremely nice car called a Tesla. And most of the world's automotive manufacturers now have major programs for production of electric cars, initially aimed at the uh, affluent market. But uh, every year that goes past, the cost for, the, uh, for these cars comes down and the demographic that can buy these cars goes up. And I think that by 2020, the average mum and dad will be able to afford these cars. They'll have range of 200 to 300 kilometres, which does all your commuting. There will be rapid charge facilities between all of the cities so that you can confidently drive from Canberra to Sydney with perhaps um, one stop or no stops, depending on the range of your car. And the stop would be for about 20 or 30 minutes to uh, charge 60 or 80% of the battery while you have a cup of coffee. And if you want to go from Sydney to Melbourne, a thousand kilometres, you might have two stops. Well, how far are we off the economics here? So it would have to compete with uh, diesel and petrol. Is that far away? Uh, the cost of an electric car is likely to be fully competitive uh, round about uh, the end of next year, I think. Um, the cost of the energy, the cost of the maintenance is much lower for an electric car. The impediment is that the capital cost is somewhat higher. But if you do the analysis over the 10 or 15 year life of a car, you come out ahead with the electric car. To put it in perspective, uh, a one kilowatt solar panel on your roof will cost an extra $1,000 or $1,500 if you install it as part of a larger installation. And that will last 20 years, and that will power your electric car to drive 8,000 kilometers per year. So a $1,500 panel runs your car for the next 20 years, 8,000 kilometers per year, at about one cent per kilometer. What about the cost of the batteries? The batteries would need to be replaced every 10 years, and I don't know what the price of batteries will be in 10 years, except that it'll be much lower than they are now. Oh, and I'd like to take you back to a project you were doing uh, oh, maybe 10 years ago, uh, which I remember was called CHAP, which stands for Combined Heat and Power. Can you uh, describe that for our listener? Yes, this was a project that was uh, predicated on the fact that at that time the solar cells were fairly expensive. And the idea was to replace most of the solar cells by a cheap parabolic mirror and focus the light onto a line of, of fairly expensive but efficient silicon solar cells. The project went well. We completed, uh, we completed the project, the technology looked good, and the price of solar cells came down by a factor of four. And that um, killed the project because no longer were solar cells expensive compared with mirror. In fact, it could be that the solar cells were cheaper than the mirror. Ah, so here's a little micro example of the changing economics right there in your very own lab. That's correct. Um, in fact, I've, I've worked on many aspects of photovoltaics over the years, and several of my pet topics have come unstuck because of progress in silicon photovoltaics. Um, 
And uh, I'm very sad to see that happen, but also very happy to see that happen. And people who have invested in coal mines and coal power stations and nuclear power stations and carbon capture and storage and solar thermal and ocean energy and bioenergy are all finding that their business models are being destroyed as we watch by photovoltaics and wind energy, which now each take a quarter of the new generation capacity installed worldwide each year simply because they are the cheapest ways to do it. Well, so now we have a lot of sunk costs in the existing generation capacity, the coal-fired power stations around Australia, and the various arguments about carbon capture and storage, make them more efficient and so on. Uh, Where are they headed? Um, Into the dustbin of history. And as I mentioned before, the argument is... uh, pushing them now or letting them run for another 20 years and belch out a huge amount more of particulates and carbon dioxide and um, and not worry about uh, the, the cost of emitting these pollutants. So you mentioned carbon dioxide just now. Uh, something we haven't really talked much about today is the climate effects. Uh, how much difference will these sorts of things make to that? Well, wind and PV don't use water in their energy production, and they don't emit carbon dioxide in their energy production. There is a small amount of carbon dioxide emitted at present in their manufacture, which is recovered through reductions in um, coal power station emissions by the operation in a period of about a year or less. In other words, the energy payback time or the carbon dioxide payback time for wind and PV is, is about a year. And as wind and PV progressively replace fossil fuels, then of course that ends up at zero. If wind and PV are used to make wind and PV, then there is no carbon dioxide emissions associated with manufacturing. Ah, now uh, during the song break, you also made a comment about war. Can you repeat that? <laughs> One of the really attractive features of wind and photovoltaics is that there are essentially zero energy uh, security implications. We will never go to war over supply of wind and PV. We regularly go to war over oil supply, and there is a horrendous threat of war over nuclear technology. And it is completely obvious that the way to uh, nuclear weapons and nuclear terrorism is through the civilian nuclear energy market. If you have a country with a substantial nuclear capacity, uh, nuclear generation capacity, then they have the technology, the skilled people and the raw materials to produce both clean and dirty bombs and kill lots of people. And also they have in their own country a, a nuclear weapon just waiting for the other country to fire a missile and breach their containment reactor. In contrast, uh, it's very, very hard to imagine how you could kill someone with PV apart from being electrocuted. I mean, I suppose you could hit somebody over the head with a panel, but there's not much else you can do. Oh, the instructions, the safety instructions say do not hit. Yeah, and they're they're 20 kilograms, so it's probably even a bit hard to do that. And um, they also confer robustness. Robustness means resilience in the face of shock. We have 20 maybe large power stations, maybe 30, and a few network nodes. And if you take out any two or three of these, then the whole electricity system goes down. When we have a wind and PV system, we'll have literally millions of 
of electricity generators and it would be like the the net it's a network and you have to take out hundreds of thousands of these items before you bring the system down and that means that a, a country with a distributed wind and pv electricity system is highly resilient to attack from within and from without by terrorists and foreign armies. So analogy would be, say, say the internet, which was built initially by DARPA uh, and with the architecture because it was had many nodes and many lines of redundancy, and so wasn't it easy to knock it out? Is that is that just sort of thinking? That's precisely correct. The way I see the electricity system in cities going is that most people will have PV on their roof, most people will have a modest-sized battery in their basement. That battery will have emergency supply capabilities so that if the network goes down they can continue operations and this also means that um, they can continue to charge and continue operations uh, with the proviso that if you get a, a cloudy day they'll have to scale back but in the main they can continue even if the network falls over. So now, um, objections to nuclear, you're pretty clear on the safety aspects and, of course, the problem of nuclear waste is well understood. Uh, and, in fact, there's uh, South Australia are, are complaining about low-level nuclear waste that are going to have to be stored somewhere. And a while ago, I interviewed an energy expert, Nicole Foss, and she was saying that a nuclear power station has to be fed electricity even after it stops generating just to keep the reactor cool and so the net energy benefit of the whole plant is greatly undermined. Is, is, is that something that you would comment on? I think it's uh, the first bit is true. I don't think the second bit is true. Um, the, the reason why Fukushima had such a problem was that the incoming seawater knocked out the gensets that um, would provide the electricity for the pumps to keep the reactor cool cool and so the reactor core overheated. Uh, modern nuclear plants could in principle have completely fail-safe techniques where you have uh, a large supply of water uphill for example and it's gravity fed rather than electricity fed. There remains a significant question over safety but the reason why nuclear is being installed at the rate of a few gigawatts per year which is one part, one part in 30 of the rate of PV and one part in 30 of the rate of wind is simply that it's twice as expensive as PV and wind. Nuclear can't compete on an economic basis with PV and wind. The nuclear industry is doomed on economics alone. So, Andrew, are you optimistic I mean, in the face of the political winds which blow in every which direction, that uh, it seems like an unpredictable environment, but are you overall an optimist? Do you think we're going to be able to meet the climate challenge? Uh, no. I think we are going to do huge damage to our planet. Um, the bleaching of the barrier reef is symptomatic. The um, disappearing snow in the snow mountains is symptomatic. And climate change is exponential. We've got so much carbon dioxide locked in that we are going to lose a large fraction of Earth's beauty and, and pleasantness of life. That said, that doesn't mean that we should throw up our hands because we can lose all of it if we throw up our hands. And the arguments that are going to go around the world are, should, uh, should we push out fossil fuel fast with concerted government action or should we just let laissez-faire reign supreme and do nothing and in 20 or 30 years time we'll have a fully renewable energy system but we'll have locked in three or four degrees of global warming. 
energy is 80% of all greenhouse gas emissions. Most energy is going to go electric. The big argument all around the world is um, push out coal power stations very fast using reverse auctions like the ACT government has done or um, renewable energy targets. Well, how much traction are you seeing on the political side now? Um, within the ALP, um, substantial. Within the Greens, fantastic. Within the Liberals, I'm sad to say, very poor. I fail to understand the Liberals' position. It's not communists. Uh, well, it, it is communists in some degree, Chinese people, but it's not um, un anti capitalists who are running these companies that are itching to put in wind and PV. These are people who want to make a profit. There's far more jobs, far more profit to be made out of this technology than will be made out of fossil fuels. We ought to move now to make sure that we share that profit rather than simply importing from China, Vietnam, Malaysia, other places. Now, recently you spoke at a panel for Beyond Zero Emissions on the uh, regional energy superpower project or plan. Um, what's your take on that? Uh, I think there's lots of opportunity to export technology and also to export electrons by high-voltage DC cable up through the Indonesian archipelago from Australia. And uh, all of this is part of a, uh, a virtuous circle. If we have a plan to push most fossil fuels out of the electricity sector and move most energy to electricity by 2030. And to do so, all we would need to do is multiply the rate at which we're putting wind and PV in at the moment by a factor of two or three. It's not a big leap. It's a small leap, but we need to make that leap. Well, that, that's a, a, a great statement for today's program, and uh, it's been a great pleasure to talk to you. Um, just a quick uh, heads up on what's happening in the newspaper. So today we have an Ask Fuzzy column, which is uh, syndicated across Fairfax, and it's about hearing loss and noise. Don't expose yourself to excessive noise. And Andrew tells me his dad had a hearing problem. Um, uh, we, we talked about spider vision earlier, and so that's one we've got coming up, one on coral colour. And you can pick us up on fuzzylogic at podbean.com, uh, .podbean.com, so you can listen to the podcast on your device, singy or online. And uh, send us your questions to askfuzzy at zoho.com. And thank you very much, Professor Andrew Blakers. It's been a great pleasure to talk to you today here on Fuzzy Logic. Thank you. And uh, stay tuned. Oh, next week, uh, Broderick will be on the show with uh, Sea Waste, Sea Refuse. And you might have seen things in the news recently. There's an Australian project is going to scoop up bits of microplastic out of the sea with nets. Don't know how that's going to work, but they're saying there's going to be, on a current trajectory, more bits of plastic in the sea than there are fish and plankton. So, got to do something about that. Time to go. Catch you later. <laughs> <laughs>